We're going to be uh, in Revelation 13 again, but I'm going to ask you to turn, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 10, because Hebrew, uh, 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 Revelation 13 is a, a very uh, central passage in Revelation. There's a lot going on, and I'm going to get a running start up to this passage. I feel like I'm running from the way back of the diving board off into the water. I hope it's not a belly flop. I hope it's going to be like a big cannonball or something like that when I get there. But we're going to start at the end here of the diving board in Hebrews chapter 10. You know, it's been enjoyable for Rena and me to watch our daughters uh, get married and set up their own homes. I mean, one gets married, then the other one follows, then the other one. They're kind of like airplanes lining up out of the hangar and coming, you know, and flying off. And we're like, bye! You know? uh, and and it's, things are a lot less dramatic uh, around the house uh, than, they, than they used to be. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's really fun is calling them, and especially the ability we have to FaceTime these days. And I'm interested in the fact that they seem like they're always cooking, and they're always trying out these new recipes, and, and they're showing us what they're making, and they're talking about it, and, and coming up with new things. It's really neat to watch them do that and set up their home. But it's especially satisfying for me to see the cooking, because I remember often when the girls started cooking, things didn't go as well as you would expect them to. I'll never forget Saturday afternoon, a long time ago, Rena left for a while and said, watch Audrianne. Right? She was our, our third child. She was about nine or ten at the time. And of course, I was working on a sermon, so of course I would be really diligently watching her. And she came up to the sta- upstairs into my study and she said, Daddy, can I make macaroni and cheese? And I thought about that for a second. You know, how long would she not be bothering me if I let her do this? You know, but then the t- burner's on, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I did the compassionate thing and I said, Well, do you know how to make macaroni and cheese? She says, I, I watch mommy do it all the time. So I said, Okay, if you're really careful and you have to read the directions and you have to follow them very carefully, you can make macaroni and cheese. And I'll be down in a few minutes to check on you. Well, time went on and on. And I can't believe I forgot to check on her, but eventually she, she came up and she said, Daddy, I read all the directions and I did everything just right, but something's wrong. It's not working. So I followed her downstairs and she pointed to the sink where the contents of what she had been doing ended up, and I looked in. Well, to begin with, she was using a steaming pot, you know, the kind with all the holes in the bottom, Okay. And so everything that had been in there, a lot of it had, had run out. So after I observed the whole situation, I told Adrian, there are two important things that you need to do differently next time and everything will go great. First, you can't use a pot with holes in the bottom. And she said, yeah, I kind of figured that out, you know, afterwards. She said, well, what's the other thing? And I told her, before you mix in the butter and the cheese sauce, you have to boil the macaroni. And she said, oh, I was wondering why it wasn't getting any bigger, you know, as she stirred it in. You know, everything we do has essential steps in the process, indispensable ingredients, without which our efforts to make something or do something are going to end in failure. Assuming your car is in running condition, you can sit behind the wheel all day long, but if you don't have the keys and you don't have gas in the car, you're not going anywhere. I have graduate students sometimes who will say, how can I pass this class? And I will often tell them my standard answer from the rule of St. Benedict, labora et ora, work and pray. Those two ingredients, and you can pass this class. Well, when it comes to our walk with Christ, there are also ingredients, certain virtues, in fact, 
that the Bible tells us are indispensable for a Christian, especially, especially a Christian going through trials. In fact, so essential are these two virtues that I'm thinking of that really come out in the Scripture, that without them, you actually have very little reason to think that you're a genuine believer at all. What are these two virtues? Well, I want to start reading in Hebrews chapter 10 and see if you can determine what I'm thinking about in these passages. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 10 where we meet believers who were being persecuted for their testimony for Christ. Just like the believers in Revelation. There's a lot of parallels between Hebrews and Revelation. And remember what I've said before. You cannot really appreciate the book of Revelation unless you read it as a believer who is facing the real prospect that he or she might actually die as a martyr. Well, those who received the letter to the Hebrews knew a thing or two about suffering. No one had yet died for their faith. The writer of Hebrews tells them that later in the chapter. But he says, starting in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, which is the reference of their salvation, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. People would come in, they'd be afraid the government was going to come down on their their village or whatever, and they'd force all the Christians out, and they'd take their stuff and make them go away. You accepted that joyfully, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, he warns them, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. In other words, don't throw away the confidence of your salvation. Don't abandon Christ because of persecution, for in the end, you will have great reward. He says in verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and here he's quoting the Old Testament, yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay. Sounds very close to what Revelation says. But in the meantime, my righteous one, those who are truly saved, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, in other words, if he abandons the faith, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, he goes on, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So these believers are being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And it's not just adults being uh, put out of the home. I think as adults, sometimes we think, you know, I could, I could stand up for Christ. I could be persecuted. It's okay. But if you're a parent and you're thinking about the implications you're bringing on everybody else in your family, especially in that time when you had like a patriarchal system, more or less, where uh, there are several families living together, you are, you're, you are implicating your whole family. And you could make it stop by going back to normal life and just giving up this crazy idea about a crucified Savior who brings you into forgiveness with God who's going to come back for you. And the writer of Hebrews is pleading with them to endure, that is to hold on to Christ and never let go because Christ is their only hope. The word endure that we see in this text and the word endurance that you saw literally means to remain under. That's the literal translation of it in the Greek language. To remain under. To remain under what? To remain under pressure. 
to remain under hardship, to keep yourself under unfair treatment. For Jesus' sake, to stay with it, to persevere, to be steadfast, to not give up. And then he says, we, that is, we who are true believers and are not those who shrink back. That is, we do not give up. Rather, we preserve our souls. We know we have eternal life because we have faith. Now, faith is so important in the book of Hebrews. He takes time to define it. So after verse 39, we actually, that's the last verse of the chapter. We pick up with chapter 11, verse 1, which begins, as most of you know, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I've shared this before in in sermons and in lessons. I, I want people to know exactly what this verse is saying because this really is a good definition of faith. But I don't know after people read it if they can really define what faith is, but it really does define it for us. It's saying here that faith is the assurance and conviction that what God has said is real, is real. That it really is true whether or not I can perceive it with my physical senses. And there are two areas in which God has said something is real, but I can't perceive it with the senses. I can't prove it empirically. First, in the area of what is promised but not yet obtained. He says, the coming one will come and will not delay. Jesus is going to return to us for us. Those who received the letter of Hebrews could not perceive the Lord's coming because it was in the future, and it still is. We can see his coming only by faith. Also, he says, faith is assurance and conviction about what is present but not yet observed. For example, he says, you have a better possession and an abiding one. You already have a possession. You have an eternal home in heaven. It's already there beyond the veil. And it is the reality of that which is promised but not yet obtained and that which is present but not yet observed that the people of faith in the Old Testament put their confidence in as they followed the Lord. And the rest of Hebrews 11, as you know, offers examples of these people. He talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and so forth, all of whom went through significant hardships and even violent deaths, some of them, and were able to endure because they saw through faith what God had promised and they knew it was true. In fact, we could say this morning after the quartet saying they knew that God's word would not return void. And the writer uses Jesus himself as the ultimate example and he encourages us to live by faith and endure, to remain under whatever hardship, whatever discomfort that God allows to come to pass into our lives as his wise plan allows for us with Jesus Christ in front of us. So at the end of this long list in chapter 11, which we're skipping all of chapter 11 going right to chapter 12, Jesus is actually the last person on his list in chapter 11 that he's using it as an example. So he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which I think, believe he's talking about those in chapter 11, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us, let us do what they did and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners 
such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, but endure till the end. This is the same message that Jesus himself, through the Apostle John, writes to the persecuted believers in the book of Revelation. He reminds them of his promised return and shows them exactly what that return will look like. And he encourages them to continue in the faith and patiently endure, and they will be victors, going all the way back to uh, the, the messages to the churches, which takes us all the way back to uh, uh, when we started the series, back uh, when we uh, first started COVID. That's when we started the series on, on Revelation. If it seems a long time ago, it was. Uh, in Ephesians, Jesus' messages uh, to, the, to the church was, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And he says to the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you may be, you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. To Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. To Thyatira, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Only hold fast what you have till I come. And to Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Well, I think by now you're all aware of what these two virtues, these indispensable virtues are for a Christian that I'm talking about this morning, especially going through trials and also in the normal walk of the Christian life, doing the will of the Father, following the Lord. The two virtues are faith and endurance, the assurance and conviction that what God has promised will truly come to pass, that the way he has described what actually exists in the world is the way things really are, and the endurance that comes from that faith as we cling to him in times of hardship. And with those virtues firmly in our minds, I want us to begin looking at probably what is the most iconic chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. And here's what we learn about the two, here's where we learn, I should say, about the two beasts, uh, which you you think about when you think about Revelation. Uh, One of them is the Antichrist, one of them is the false prophet. Here is where we learn about the mark of the beast. Everybody knows about the mark of the beast, 666. This is in this chapter. Here we learn about the kind of government that will rule over the world during the tribulation period. But, but this chapter, like all of Revelation, is not given to the church of Jesus Christ simply to satisfy our curiosity about what is in the future or to give Christians something to debate about. This chapter is again given to the church to encourage, to bolster our faith, even if times become very difficult in our world in which Satan is set against Christ and his people, and it's written to encourage us to endure, to remain under till Jesus 
comes. As we saw, Revelation chapters 12 through the beginning of chapter 14 describe the feudal war of the devil. That's my title for this section, chapters 12 all the way through the beginning of chapter 14. It's a feudal war because Satan is already doomed for final destruction and he tries everything he can do to fight back against Christ and God's chosen people or believers. And he always fails and it drives him into this insane fury. And so he first attacks Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 12, 1 through 6 is a vision revealing that Satan tried to destroy the Lord Jesus as soon as he was born into the world and all the way through his ministry. And when that failed, Satan eventually tried to storm heaven itself. This is a battle we see that really hasn't taken place yet. It's going to happen about halfway through the tribulation period described in this book. It's Satan's last ditch effort to take over heaven. And when that fails, as we saw last week, Satan will come after the nation of Israel. He will persecute. The word is literally, he will pursue them. And God will once again lovingly and graciously rescue his chosen people. And because Satan's attempt has failed at every level, finally, he will turn his furious, insane wrath against those who really know Jesus Christ, whose hope is in Christ. Those people in the tribulation period who are just like us, witnesses for Jesus Christ. And that is what we are beginning to see in our text this morning. We're not going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Uh, In fact, we're going to spend a few weeks here in this chapter. There's so much to cover. But there will be two beasts that we will read about in this chapter. In the section we'll study this morning, we see that there's a beast that rises up from the sea. When we continue next week, we'll see that there's also a beast that rises up from the earth. So let's begin our reading this morning, actually in chapter 12, which is the the bridge that leads us into chapter 13, and we'll see the whole picture. So after Satan, uh, the dragon, pursues the the woman who is Israel in the the drama vision John is having here, and fails, it says... He goes off, verse 17, to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. These are genuine believers. And it says, he stood on the sand of the sea. Here's the dragon on the sand of the sea. And then we turn to chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns. And seven heads with ten diadems, those are fancy crowns, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's a a three-and-a-half-year period toward the end of Revelation. We talked about that last week. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, out of all of the amazing things that John has revealed to us in the book of Revelation, why now? does he say, especially this calls for endurance and faith among believers? I mean, you would think that message would would be really pointed by now, but he chooses this particular time. Why now, during these three and a half year period where Satan is going after the believers, does he now say we have to especially, as God's people, have endurance and and faith, and I think there are three reasons. First of all, this morning, because of their enemy seeking to destroy them. In verse 17, the dragon, having failed in his attempt to destroy God, his son, his chosen people, turns his full wrath during the tribulation period on those who have come to faith in Christ, who are his witnesses. And they are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. We talked about the significance of this last week already. But after the dragon, Satan, goes off to make war against those who know Jesus Christ, it says at the end of the verse that he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. And then notice it says, I saw the beast rising out of the sea. And here's what's happening. The dragon in John's vision is calling forth a champion, a representative out of the depths, out of the abyss, who will target Christians and kill them, just like Satan used a serpent in the garden at the beginning to do his bidding and deceive Eve. He will use this beast that he is calling forth. Now, we're going to talk about this beast both this week and next week. And I don't want you to miss that this beast derives his power from another source. Initially, the beast gets his power from the dragon. Did you notice that? Satan, he shares it with him. But Satan's end goal all along is to turn the world to worshiping him rather than worshiping God. Thus, in the tribulation, the issue of the entire world will be the same as it is now. Who are we going to worship? So let's start to unpack this text. Continuing to read verse 1, notice it says, The beast has ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And then verse 2, The beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, I don't know if you can imagine all of this in your mind's eye. If you, if you take these verses and sketch it out on paper, it comes to, it, you lose some of the imagery. There's so much of it to hold together. And I don't, didn't bring an illustration to show you uh, this morning. But this sounds like a very hideous kind of creature, a hideous beast. But remember, and this is really important, at the beginning of chapter 12, if you were here for that, John says 
that all of this drama, the dragon, the woman, her child in chapter 12, the beast rising from the sea in this chapter, the beast uh, starting in verse 11 that will rise from the earth a little bit later in the chapter, this is a drama being played out in front of John. And John calls it signs, all right? So in Revelation, a lot of people are are, are saying, you know, can we really read the book of Revelation? We don't know what all the symbolism means. Well, there's only symbolism when the book says this is a symbol, and, and it means something. And, and actually, uh, we've already, uh, John very clearly identifies the dragon as Satan. He names him. So he's not saying there's going to be an actual beast that all of a sudden rises out of the sea during the tribulation period. Uh, God is trying to show John in, in so many pictures, so many word pictures, the kind of thing that is going to happen. And we unpack the, the, the idea of the beast coming out of the sea. We'll see why the, this picture says so much more than words could describe about what is going to be happening and what this drama represents. And now this dragon is on the shore calling forth this beast from the water, and the beast represents something greater than the vision. The sign always represents something greater than itself. Now, what does the beast mean? I'm not going to explain that this morning, all right? Sorry. Because it's going to take some time to unpack the details of this vision. I want to stay focused on faith and endurance this morning, okay? We're getting a big picture idea here. We're going to have to go back to Daniel 7, where we first meet this creature, actually, and find out what Daniel says, and we'll see a direct parallel to what uh, John is saying in Revelation. But I will give you heads up. We can identify the beast that we're talking about. As I'm just going to call him what the text calls him this morning, the beast. We'll identify him next week as the Antichrist that we read about in other portions of the New Testament. And the heads and horns and diadems all have political meaning. They represent rulers and kingdoms. And I'm going to focus a little more on the political aspect of the vision next Lord's Day. I, I promise not to disappoint anyone, I hope, anyway. But what I want you to, to think about right now is the rest of verse 2. It says, To it, that is, to the beast, the dragon, Satan, gave his power and his throne and his great authority. The beast is given power from Satan, that is, ability to do miraculous things so that people are led astray. And it says he gives him his throne, which means his seat of governing authority. And it says he gives him great authority, the super ability to run the governments of the world so that his political agenda, his political influence stretches around the globe. Now, here's what happens with some of his power. Look at verse 3. One of the beast's heads seemed to have a mortal wound. In other words, it looked like the beast was going to die. Maybe there was a battle that the beast had to go through to establish his authority. He's, he's wounded by a sword. Later on, we find out that in the text. He's trying to establish dominance. But look what happens. Its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The beast turns the world to marvel and wonder at it, which is the way to say the whole world starts worshiping the beast. And not only did they worship the beast, look at verse 4, they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Do you see why this is a time 
that is going to especially call for faith and endurance. The dragon in his rage will call forth this this person, the Antichrist, represented in John's vision by this beast who will be worshipped by the whole world and feared by the world. And this beast's task is not only to deceive the world, but to hunt down and kill anyone who is a believer in Christ. In fact, if we keep reading down in verse 7, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, in the history of the world, there have always been periods of persecution against believers. And that continues to this day. Just because we don't see it in our country doesn't mean they're not persecution going on in many other countries. I think we're all aware of that. And sometimes are worse than others. There are very serious times of persecution. But imagine what it will be like for Christians who have a testimony about their faith in Christ living during a time when Satan is literally turning every political and cultural force on the earth against them and not satisfied until they are all destroyed. He couldn't take over Christ. He couldn't take over heaven. He couldn't take over the nation of Israel because God protected her. The only ones he can go after are those living believers who have a testimony for Christ. This is a very serious time. We'll find out more about how serious it is as we get into the details next week. But there's another reason that believers are told that they're Uh, They have to have faith and endurance for this unprecedented time. Not only because of their enemy trying to destroy them, but also because of their culture standing against them. And again, if we think the enemy is standing against us today, and we think the culture is standing against us today, we really don't know what that means yet. The whole world yearning in one direction while believers are headed in a completely opposite direction. Going against the grain, we think that Christians are becoming outnumbered in the West right now. And it's true. There are fewer Christians today than there were maybe 20 years ago in the West on average. But we ain't seen nothing yet. It's nothing like it is going to be during this period. Notice the statements of the text. Look at verse 3. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Verse 4, they worshiped the dragon and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And here we see that the people of the earth worship a different God. Their God is the beast, ultimately Satan. They're enamored with these two and they immediately put themselves in a worship position in front of the beast, which puts Christians in an antithetical relationship against them because we worship only the God of heaven, the God who created us. Now, I want you to think about this for a few minutes. What convinced, in the text, we can answer this question just from the text, what convinced the entire world to make the beast their object of worship? What, what, what was it in the text that brought them to this? And the answer is in verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a mortal wound, but the wound was healed. In essence, he came back from the dead, and all of the earth bows and worships. Now, here's a very curious thing. Not much earlier than this, do you remember? There were two witnesses whom the Lord raised up to preach specifically to his people, the Jews calling them to faith in Christ. Their ministry is basically in the first half of the, res- of the tribulation period. This is going back to Revelation chapter 11. 
and I'm just going to spend just a couple minutes here reminding us what's happening. They preach the gospel during this first part of the tribulation period. And Revelation 11 says, when they have finished their testimony, God had a time for it to end, their witness, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, as it says here in the ESV, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The beast has already killed believers who witness for Christ. The two witnesses. This is the same beast we're reading about here in Revelation 13. Now, I know the ESV says that the beast rises from the bottomless pit. I want you to know the word is simply the abyss. It refers to something, some great depths. And it often refers in the scripture to the depths of the sea. And I think this is really a mistranslation here in the ESV. I'll write him about it this week. Uh, so it, I, I, think, I think when it says in Revelation 13 that the beast rises up out of the sea, this is the same reference here. It's not coming up out of the bottomless pit that we read about in Revelation 20. Although the word abyss is used there also. This is the beast coming up out of the sea. And the, the, the dragon has brought him forth to do what? His mission is, which is to kill those who are testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ. The two witnesses may have been his first victims. No one had been able to touch these guys. Remember, fire comes out of their mouths and they try to get close and they're, they're, God has given them the, the authority to witness. But finally, he says, that's it, you're done. And the beast kills them. Once their time was over, by the Lord's design, Satan calls the beast up from the abyss and they are now demised. And most of you remember that it says they left their bodies in the street for everyone to see, and there was this great party celebrating that the witnesses were dead. But in verse 11, it says, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from uh, from heaven saying, come up here. And these two witnesses went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. In other words, the beast had done his worst. All he could do is kill them. And they came back to life. And what do you do with witnesses that won't stay dead? And God calls them up to heaven. I would want to know if I were there who these guys serve, whose voice was that that called them up. I would want to worship that guy But the world didn't want to know. In fact, when Jesus himself rose from the dead, people didn't want to know. The religious leaders, the religious leaders themselves started a rumor that the disciples had stolen the body. They tried to to hide the evidence. Do you realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is verifiable history according to the normal historical methods that are used by secularists today? Gary Habermas, who's a professor at Liberty University, has spent most of his academic life with scholars, arguing with scholars about the historicity of the resurrection. In fact, Gary's testimony, he earned his PhD in the 1970s at Michigan State University, writing a dissertation on the verifiability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he said everybody laughed at him all the time for writing this dissertation, and he defended it. But he said today, nobody is laughing because these arguments have gone into the mainstream. And he says there are several pieces of evidence that most scholars will say, yes, those are verifiable proofs. The disciples had experiences that led them to believe that they saw the risen Jesus. The story of the resurrection literally turned the world upside down, and it has never recovered. 
People were willing to die for their claim. The critics now agree that the message of the resurrection was proclaimed before Paul. People, critics used to say, Paul invented Christianity. And everybody says, well, actually, the, the record of the resurrection predates Paul. Paul was actually fighting against the resurrection uh, before he came to faith in Christ. How could he have invented it? And everybody will admit that. And I could go on with different arguments this morning, but Gary says that he has dialogues with atheists, agnostics, critics scholars who do not dispute any of the evidences. And the most likely explanation for all of them, if you're doing the, the, the measured work of a historian, is that Jesus must have really risen from the dead. In fact, critics have generally given up espousing alternative theories to explain the evidence for the resurrection because none of the alternative explanations satisfy the evidence as much as the simple truth that Jesus must have risen from the dead. And yet they will not believe it. They say things like, you're asking me to believe in Narnia. I thought Narnia was real, actually. Uh, you're, you're asking me to believe in Oz. They will not believe. They do exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth. They hold it down. They say no to it. But here is the beast who seems to have a mortal wound. The way the text words it, it's, it's almost like a deception. It looked like he should have died, but he lived. And now the world is enamored with somebody who, who they thought was dead, and now he's alive. And they fawn over him, and they follow him. Who is like the beast? Who can overcome the beast? Forgetting everything that already happened. This is the world that believers will be living in where everyone but they are deceived into following a false Christ, a false narrative. We see that in our world today. It's like people don't even want to know truth. They don't want to look that direction. They want to continue to believe the lie. We shouldn't be surprised because verse 8 describes these people as those who names are, whose names are not written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was really slain, who truly rose again. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is capable of blinding the minds of the unbelieving so they will believe a lie, and that lie will be universal in that day. I know that we might feel outnumbered now as the people of God, but imagine the alienation from all of society and the pressure it will be to just give in and conform to what everyone wants just worship the beast like everyone else. What's wrong with you? But this situation calls for, it demands a special measure of endurance and faith for the saints. And if we feel any of this pressure now, to whatever degree, the answer is still the same, endurance and faith for God's people. Now, I know our time is short and we have a meal to eat, so I'm in a hurry. We're going to dig deeper into this next week. But there's one final reason I want to mention this morning for this intense statement that living in this time period calls for a special measure of what believers need, endurance and faith. And it is this, because of their God allowing the beast to conquer them. Let that sink in for a second. That's a little different than the other two. You mean the beast driven by the dragon is killing Christians and God is okay with this? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, that he's okay with us, as if it doesn't matter to him. It matters greatly to him. His saints are precious to him. 
But we see God actively involved in these events and sometimes allowing the dragon and the beast to have their way under his sovereign control, further sealing their own fate. We see this starting in verse 5. Notice it says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Now, it doesn't say who gave it. And at first, we might read it and say, the dragon gave him this mouth. But immediately, we see something else said, that it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And so, oftentimes, Bible commentators put these two together. God's actually giving the mouth, and he's giving the authority. I can't make my mind out of the first one, okay? So you can decide for yourself. But either way, God is sovereign over what's happening. He's allowing the beast to operate this program of worship and persecution against believers under a set of controls. So when the Lord's witnesses are proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent, they are doing so in the midst of a culture of intense persecution, and God knows everything about it. In fact, he's measured it. Not only that, verse 7 says, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. It means that when the beast organizes the forces of this earth to hunt down and attack and kill the witnesses of the gospel. God has allowed this to happen. And the authority that the beast has over the whole earth, whereby the dragon and the beast is bending the world to its will, this is also something God has brought about. And if it isn't enough to ponder here, we have this remarkable statement in verse 9. This cry goes out, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's what Jesus would say to his hearers in the Gospels. That's what he says seven times in his messages of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Here also, he's calling to his own people. He's asking them to understand something very unique. And then there is this poetic statement that's actually taken from Jeremiah 15, if we had time to turn there this morning. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes... If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. In other words, God has ordained some people to be taken captive and to be killed. And all of the unrest and upheaval of the political system of the world and the universal onslaught against believers in Christ, this is not some violent, out-of-control storm with a mind of its own. Sometimes we imagine our trials like that. Like, like we talk about them as if they're a personality and they're going to do things. They, they, that's impossible. God is the one in control. Everything that happens is entirely and sovereignly regulated by God. But the remarkable thing is this poetic statement declaring that God has ordained captivity and death is not given to the world in general. It is given here to Christians. He's saying, in essence, if it is my will that you be arrested for my name's sake, you will be arrested. If it is my will that even you be killed for my name's sake, you will be killed. Because right after that, we have this climactic statement, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. And God wants to give his grace in these times of captivity and death. These indispensable ingredients, these necessary virtues, especially in times of trouble, we need them. Endurance remaining under the pressure and accepting it from God's hand because we know that it is only for a brief time and we have this glorious end, this glorious hope 
a victory over the devil, and we will escape his clutches and rush to the arms of the Savior. The people who are believers in the tribulation period will embrace that and trust in it. No wonder the beast blasphemes. You noticed in verse 6, he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven because he can't touch them anymore. They're, they're free from him. They've won. And not only endurance, but faith, because they need to see with conviction and assurance what God is actually doing, that his promises are true. Faith makes endurance possible. So one question this morning as we consider in general what's happening in this text, and we'll pick this up next week. And here's the question. If the Lord's people can have endurance and faith in such a time as described here, when Satan is literally operating a universal political program aimed to kill them as ordained by God in a culture where anyone who is not a believer is actually worshiping Satan, And don't forget the judgments that have been coming upon the whole world during this time. We we can't forget that's going on during all of this. If they can have endurance and faith in that environment, is there anything that we are facing in our time that is too hard for God where he cannot give us endurance and faith also? No matter what we're going through, no matter how difficult it may seem, Understanding that we live in a broken world that is heading for destruction and only those who know Christ Jesus will be vindicated in the end and glorified. These, these may seem like hard times. In fact, uh, I watch a lot of things that are going on and, and you do too and you think, wow, th- th- things are getting worse daily, it seems. And we may even wonder when we read this text, God, why does it have to be this way? But keep in mind, the Lord hasn't asked us to go through anything that he has not already suffered and much more. So we do what the writer of Hebrews urges us to do. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, though despising the shame of it, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We, we simply recapitulate what Jesus already did for us. We follow his path. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I think we should be encouraged by this passage in Revelation 13 because this is as bad as it's ever going to get for believers on this earth. And if those future believers who may not be too far in the future, actually, if you think about it, if God can give them endurance and faith in the midst of their trials, surely he can bless us in the same way as we keep our eyes on Jesus, our greatest example of faith and endurance. Father, thank you.